The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 972 7420. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all today. Good morning, morning. Scott. Don? Good morning, Gary. So uh, interesting. We were just talking about this last week, Don, with the U.S., and it looks like uh, Canada is following suit. 3.1% interest rates now down from, uh, or sorry, inflation, uh, 3.1% down from 3.8% reported this week. Uh, I guess, like you mentioned, just following the U.S. here. Yeah, you know what? The uh, dog dog the dog does wag the tail, uh, Canada being the tail. And uh, generally speaking, you know, what U.S. is uh, you know going through, Canada usually goes through. So it, it's great news. It, it does appear you know, with the, our interest rates, and you mentioned interest rates by, by mistake with inflation, they kind of go hand in hand. So it's easy to mix those two up because when inflation is high, interest rates go up. Now, with the interest rates dropping, there will be pressure to at least keep the interest rates the same. Um, hopefully, you know, they're talking about second quarter next year. But again, I never really trust what they're talking about because last year they said by this time next right now, we would be seeing lower interest rates and it hasn't happened yet. So it's been stickier than they expected. Um, they being the economists and the federal government ex- and, you know, that the, the powers to be. But the result will end up the same. It has been a it went all the way to about eight percent inflation and it's come down to three and We've seen the interest rates go up, but they haven't come down yet. So they will be following suit. It's just a matter of time. But uh, I know, Gary, uh, you know, interest rates uh, are one thing. Financial planning and year-end, we do a lot of year-end tax planning, but year-end income planning is also extremely important. And I know, uh, you know, RSPs and RIF withdrawals really come into play. Yeah, absolutely, Don. And uh, I read an interesting article uh, a week or so ago. Uh, in the the investment executive publication, and and basically, uh, you know, when it comes to to decisions that that clients or investors make about uh, withdrawing money from from their RIF, you know, there there's so many factors to uh, to take into account, and you know, having a, a specific strategy dependent upon the situation is is really critical. And some of the factors obviously include annual income, cash flow needs, and uh, and, and of course, whether someone is is really planning to uh, leave as large an estate as possible after tax for their heirs. So there's a there's a lot of things to to factor in, and of course there are many people out there who uh, almost almost mechanically uh, wait till age 71 if they can, and and convert to a RIF or 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 do so whenever they stop working, whenever they retire, they convert to a RIF. And if the minimum, the prescribed minimum that the government says you have to take, um, th- that's the figure that they they go with. And it's if there isn't a lot of thought put into things, um, it's it's something automatic that a lot of people, uh, I would say, f- not necessarily a trap for everyone, but it's it's something that can cause uh, some negative issues as as time goes by, unless uh, you know they. Th- unless they're working with an advisor that really views these things or this decision from a holistic standpoint, which of course we do. Yes. And Gary. 
um, you know, you hit the nail on the head. The government does have a financial plan for you, and those are the rules. And same with, you know, collecting your Canada pension plan early. That's a rule you can follow or old age security or even your wills. Perhaps there is a government will per se. Generally, not generally speaking, it's not the best plan. Yeah, exactly. And it's certainly not customized and personalized, which is what we do, specifically what we do with our clients in terms of, of laying out a, a plan. And, you know, there's there's a lot of retirees that um, that, you know, do withdraw just whatever the minimum is, as I said. And and the intent there is to keep their total income uh, as low as possible while still servicing their needs, thinking that I want to minimize the tax that I'm that I'm paying along the way and um, and making sure to people who are aware of, of things like the OAS clawback. Sometimes that's what they look at in terms of um, making sure that they don't exceed, you know, the various thresholds. But of course, you know, then we have we, we need to have a discussion about, well, when is the best time to take your OAS uh, in conjunction with your RIF income? And, you know, we've talked many times on the show about the benefits for, for specific situations of waiting until age 70, mm-hmm. if, uh, if that works best for, for an individual. And, you know, even, there, there are still people who, once they retire, um, before they convert to a RIF, will take some money out of their RSPs along the way in, in, in the latter stages uh, before, as I said, before converting to a RIF. Um, because they have other sources of income and they, they understand that they might be looking at a significant tax problem at the end of the day down the road. If their RIF, uh, if the last survivor, if it's, a, if it's a, a, a couple, if the last survivor is left with quite a large amount in the, in the RIF. So a lot, of different, you know, a lot of different things to look at. And that's where we come in in terms of working with our clients to, to plan what's best for them. And... Um, and interesting, Gary, it comes, it's funny, you keep mentioning RIF, which is great. A lot of clients may not realize that's a big difference between just simply cashing in RSP assets right. and cashing in RIF assets, where the RSP, of course, you know, it's taxable either way, but one, call, one qualifies for income splitting and also qualifies for the pension credit. And right. I had a client just two weeks ago saying, just cash in $20,000, want to increase my income. I said, well, let's move it to a RIF first. He said, I don't want to go through that hassle. Well, it turned out to about $834 difference by simply doing it through a RIF because it would qualify for the pension credit versus cashing in RSPs. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a that's a great point. And, you know, we have to remember, too, that uh, prior to age 71 or leading up to age 71, a person does not have to move all of their money from an RSP to a RIF. They can move a portion and and whatever the the minimum is, if this is the strategy that works best for them, whatever that minimum amount is per year, um, if that suffices for their needs, then, you know, that's, that's something to, to think about. So, so many different things that, that we look at and, you know, when we, uh, you know, when we, the earlier we withdraw our money from a RIF, then, then, you know, that's going to, if we have other assets, if we have non-registered assets and we've allowed our TFSAs to work and so on, then, you know, there, there's a lot of advantages. Whereas I know people view their RSPs almost like a paycheck. So I want to take just what I need as long as it, it, it's consistent with, uh, with the minimum and, 
and I'll, and automatically it's it's increased every year. We know that based on age, but um, it shouldn't it shouldn't be looked at as a as a a single focus. It really needs to be factored in, you know, with with the big picture. And the you know, in case all of our listeners are not aware, there is a formula that that is applied by the government. And, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. So at age at age 71, even though you don't you have to convert to a RIF by the time you're 71, but the minimum that you have to take out the first year you convert to a RIF is zero. So effectively, for those people where it's 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 optimum, you don't actually have to pay yourself income from your RIF until the year that you're turning 72. Um, so at age 65, for example, um, it's about four percent that the government says is the minimum that you have to take out at age 60. It's about 3.3. Uh, so there's various formulas that um, that dictate once you convert to a RIF, uh, what the percentage is that you you have to draw out. Um, you know, mandatory RIF withdrawals, you know, drastically increase your your effective rate of tax, no matter what your situation is, especially if you if you don't need it. Um, so when we when we lay out an overall plan for clients, then, you know, as I alluded to earlier, we look at the big picture. We look at, at basic current income and lifestyle needs. We, we apply inflation, a reasonable rate of inflation to that. We, we use different rates of return when we're looking at, uh, at laying out different scenarios to see uh, all the resources that, that an individual or a couple have to, to pay them income. We look at uh, best case scenarios in terms of of the greatest longevity. And then of course we look at, uh, Don, from an estate planning standpoint, we look at, you know, what are the best strategies if it's really important, if a legacy is really, really important and it's up there uh, in a close second to making sure that that individuals have enough to live the way they wanna live, then we have to look at ways of, of addressing that. But, you know, estate planning just doesn't start at retirement, of course, it starts much earlier than that. Yeah, and Gary, to your point, the RSPs and the RIFs, to me, they're a bit of a tax bomb. Of course, we all love saving tax along the way, and rightfully so, but you do have to pay the piper eventually. And this is where a lot of planning comes into play, um, generally around retirement, because you know, want to have that deferral. You don't want to pay tax on while you're working, but when you retire or have another spot is if you lose your job, RSP assets are maybe a good way to um, augment your income in a low tax bracket year because they're really just a tax deferral item. And so most people do save for retirement, but to your point, waiting till 71 and to, to move it to a RIF and then slowly taking out the minimum, well, how's that affecting their estate plan and what they could end up with? And this is my biggest pet peeve as far as tax goes, is I know they raised this whole idea where raising the income tax levels to 53.53% for anybody making over $235,000. This was... Uh, plan, or oh, I guess it started about seven years ago uh, when the liberals got in, and they're always saying, well, let's tax the rich. Well, it really wasn't. This was simply, it hits the estates more than anything, because somebody earning $60,000 a year, $80,000 a year, and built up all their net worth inside an RSP, and then they pass away. Well, they got a million dollars in RSPs. It's all taxed in the year of death, and anything over 235000 is taxed at 53.5%. So terrible number. Nobody wants to pay that kind of tax. So what do you, how do you uh, how do you reduce that? 
you take you pay tax at 30% while you're while you're retired or or even 20% at times. And this is part of the tax planning slash estate planning that both Gary and I work on with every client. We're extremely busy year end. This is a very busy time and most of it has to do with how much should we pull out of RSPs and RIFs to get your income to certain levels so you still get your old age security and you and you pay a lot less tax down the road. Wouldn't you say, Gary? Yeah, and to that point, it's really important to, which is contrary to what a lot of people think, it's really important to preserve TFSAs, to yes. preserve non-registered investments as long as possible, and chip away at the at the RSP slash RIFs so that when you need money later on, you're not you're not restricted to only drawing from your RSPs. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. A quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Find out more, donfox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to talk about investment returns this segment, Don. Yes. And you know what? We're still hanging into the last week of financial literacy month. And so, uh, you know, you're probably getting all these um, sales for either Christmas or Black Friday right now. Well, this is just as it right up there in importance uh, financial literacy month. And uh, the last week is on. And so now, wait a second. It's kind of don't you think it's kind of odd that they have financial literacy month just before December? I mean, that's perfect planning. (laughs) That's great financial planning right there. It is. Very good point. Let's try to, you know, we talked about budgeting. We talked in, in of course, Christmas uh, or the holiday time. Uh, and saying, you know what, for those that are looking at purchasing things, so obviously this is a great time to make those purchases as opposed to last minute because there is a lot of sales on right now. So again, and it's, it's a little more prudent to start off having an idea of what you want to spend and going out to kind of get a better idea rather than simply roaming around and hitting the malls, so to speak, and then be tempted to overspend. So not as much fun, perhaps, but you can let your fingers literally do the walking because your keyboard and and Amazon work quite well this time of year. But uh, anyway, I did want to talk about investments a little bit. And and we're going to start off with kind of the basics and work our way through to kind of the more sexier investments, if you will. So first of all, Right now, there's a lot of talk about fixed income and specifically guaranteed investment certificates. And and you're seeing those right now, the banks and credit unions, et cetera, are advertising, you know, 5%, um, all all the way up to about 6% right now, which seem like great returns. And actually, to be honest, with that latest inflation number, you're seeing, you know, you're ahead of inflation right now by 3%. So that's unusual. So for those type of assets, not a bad thing right now. They're, those are actually paying quite well relative to inflation. This will be short-lived because they do go in lockstep. But you know, Canada's not, and, and the world, for that matter, have not reduced the interest rates to uh, to the inflation rates yet. 
It took a while for them to catch up the other way, so I'm sure it's going to take a while to catch up on the downside. But fixed income, what, what does that mean? Basically, it's a loan. So when you buy a GIC, a guarantee investment certificate, you are loaning your bank, say $100,000, whatever the amount is, and the bank is promising you to pay you 5% for whatever term. That is, anytime there is interest, it's a sign there's a loan that has taken place. So that is how you how they make, you know, you earn money as the investor, you've lent money, and they're paying you. Now, of course, what's the institution doing with that money? Well, the lending it at seven, eight, nine percent. Mortgages are six percent. Generally speaking, there is they try to match the GIC rates to the mortgage rates, and they take the difference as the spread, and that's how they make money. So there's no free money per se, but if you do have money on the sidelines right now, like our our money market fund, which is in government treasury bills, is earning five, sorry, four point seven five percent. And not a bad rate of return. It's a heck of a lot of money, a lot, a lot better than letting it sit in your bank account, earning basically zero. So it actually, you know, there was a long time where you put money in the bank account or you could invest it. It really didn't make much difference because you weren't making much when you invested it into short-term investments. Right now, you're almost making 5%. So if you've got 100 grand sitting in your bank account and you need it six months down the road, don't let it sit in your bank account. Mo- move it over to a money market fund or something to that nature and earn close to 5%. It really does add up. So that's one thing. But there's many types of fixed income. So uh, you can invest in mortgages. We have a a mortgage fund or a short-term investment fund. And now you're lending your money to people that are now buying houses. There's Canadian bonds. Now, Canadian bonds are basically loans to the government. And the 10-year bond rate is one they like to quote all the time because it will go up and down with interest rates. There's corporate bonds. You're no longer lending to the government. You are now lending money to corporations. So if you're now lending money, and let's say uh, Bell Canada is offering a corporate bond. Okay, well, it's going to be fairly safe. It may be, uh, and I don't know offhand, it might be what they call a double A bond, where a Canadian bond is a triple A bond. Well, the more risk you're taking um, in terms of how big the company is or how, how they're able to continue to pay back your, your interest, the, uh, the lower the risk, the less the return. The higher the risk, obviously, the higher the return. And that's why they have something called high-yield bonds. And now these would be lower-grade bonds. And they go basically triple-A, double-A, single-A, and then you get into the Bs, triple-B, double-B, et cetera. Well, high-yield bonds are often in, most of those would be in the B category, and they're offering about 7 to 8% right now, again, depending on the types. But again, there's no free lunch. As my securities prof used to always tell me in university, with the risk comes, comes higher returns. If you're getting offered, we can offer you an 8% yield. I can guarantee you these are not government of Canada bonds. These are a high yield bond of some sort. Um, then there's global bonds. These are um, same as Canadian bonds, except now you're lending to different countries. And then you get into private credit. Well, private credit is a little different altogether. These are often loans to people that don't qualify for getting, you know, getting, bank, getting bank loans, for example. And they have to pay a lot more interest. Now, on their own merit, they may be higher risk. But if you get a group of 100 of them, then it's a lot less risk. Again, diversifying your private credit. 
then there's also real estate. Real estate would be a commercial real estate. And again, now you're getting rent. And that would also kind of fill in the whole fixed income segment. So you look at all those and say, okay, well, it's pretty good. Why, why wouldn't I want to just throw all my money in GICs, mortgages, corporate bonds, government bonds, high yields, et cetera. And I can probably get six to 8%, six, 7% anyway, right now. Well, what did they really do last year? Well, to be honest, they didn't do that well because when interest rates go up, bonds go down in value. And so the Canadian bond market year to date is actually negative 1%. And in the year, 12 months ending October 30th, you basically got a 0% return on, on the fixed income side. Say, so how can that be? Well, let's say you, own, you put $100,000 into a bond a year ago and it was paying you 4%. Well, the new bonds are now paying 5%. Well, you're just stuck at 4% for the next now nine years. Let's say you got a 10-year bond. Well, it's worth less. Not worthless, okay, worth less. And it's because anybody on the street can now buy a five-year, a 5% bond rather than a 4% bond. So they discount that bond. And that's what's happened in the bond markets. In the last couple of years, they haven't done well because interest rates have gone up. That being said, it may be a great opportunity to have more fixed income in your portfolio because they're paying a lot better rate of return. You know, so Don, sorry, Don, I just yeah. wanted to, to inject. So that phenomenon that you're talking about, first of all, we, we explain that to client after client because, because the expectation is that my bonds will continue to grow. But, you know, that, that inverse relationship is that phenomenon is temporary. It's temporary. It's a dynamic that happens when when interest rates go, rise up quickly or go down. And uh, I always refer to that as as a temporary situation. Without question, it's just a blip. Eventually, the new bonds are continually maturing and buying the higher interest rates. So should you buy one type of fixed income or, or several? I would buy all of them. There's no right type because nobody can guess which bonds are going to be a better investment over time. So an example, we have a, a one solution called iProfile, fixed income. Again, it's done year to date, about zero. And in the last year, it's done 1.5%. Better than the Canadian bonds, which have done zero in the last 12 months. But, uh, you know, you're looking at global bonds have done about 1.5. So with that, you're getting all those types of fixed incomes, not just one. And a lot of people often get too caught up to being a Canadian. Hey, we're all proud Canadians here. But from an investment standpoint, how would you have fared if you just invest in Canadian fixed income? You would have basically broken even in the last year rather than diversifying. But again, still nothing's outstanding. You're still only ended up with 1.5% in the last year. What about the Canadian stock market? Well, first of all, what is a stock market? Everybody says, I don't want to invest in the stock market. Well, that's, let's rephrase that. And I, when I say everyone, that's often a saying. And it comes back probably back in the 30s when people went through uh, the Great Depression. And they just kind of just call it this big name called the stock market. Well, what you're doing is you're buying businesses. And so equities is owning shares of a, of a company. So Royal Bank would be a company as an example. So if you own shares of, the, of Royal Bank, now you are a shareholder and now you would get dividends as a shareholder. And the stock price could go up or down. This year has not been great. Bank shares have gone down. 
they are also what you would call interest sensitive. So when interest rates go up, they often don't do well. But end of the day, they are very conservative, generally do quite well. And But the Canadian stock market year to date has done basically zero. Um, 0.06% is the Toronto stock market. And the one year return on the Canadian stock market is 0.43%. So let's put this in perspective. If you're an investor and you've got a Canadian balance fund, 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, the last 12 months, you basically made 0% return. You might've made 0.2. And this is why you have to diversify. Diversification is so important. Um, don't get Canada represents 3% of the world in terms of the stock market. And yet we do have a homer kind of mentality. So let's let's kind of go outside our borders now for a second. Our US stock market, the US stock market rather, the S&P 500, those are five, a collection of the 500 biggest companies in the US. Year to date's done 13.5%. Canadians done zero, okay? Uh, the one year return's been 12. So we have an iProfile um, US, again, very similar. It's got small cap. Small cap, by the way, are smaller companies. Large cap value, very large companies, been around for a while, paid dividends, growth, and also private equity. Now, your private equity are buying companies that are not on the stock market. They have eight different managers running pieces of this. And year to date, it's done 13.28. And in the one year return, it's done about 12%. Not bad. And I'm not saying let's all throw your money in U.S. because it could have been the exact opposite in the last 12 months. But again, I, no different than saying I'm going to throw it all in Canada. Um, international, year to date, it's done 5, 5%. Uh, the one year returns in 16.4. Uh, emerging markets, year to date, it's been 0.94, about 1% year to date. Um, the yet last year, though, 12.74%. So you can see by adding U.S. international emerging markets, you would have significantly re increased your rate of return. It's not even close for that matter, because if you're in Canada, you made zero. All the other countries except for Canada have done reasonably well in the last 12 months. In fact, all of them have been double digits. In the you know last what's interesting, months. Don? You know, if we look, because, you know, you just described the Canadian marketplace and what it's been doing in the last year. So relatively dormant. You talked about fixed income and, and what has taken place there. So what we're seeing, of course, now is uh, a lot of banks and credit unions are promoting the flavor of the month, and that being GIC. So they're, they're marketing aggressively GICs north of 5%. And what, what a lot of people don't realize is that, that we will see interest rates come down and we will see fixed income move forward more aggressively in a positive way than it typically does as a, as a response to that. And so if someone takes a one-year GIC thinking that, you know, that's, that's better than, than running neutral in their, in their, with their money, then when that one year expires, uh, they will have missed out likely in terms of some really positive bond growth. No question. And this is where we get very short-sighted, Gary. You know, in general, people will look at the one-year returns and say, boy, I could have put in a GIC, specifically if you're in Canada. Mind you, had you been diversified, you would have actually done quite well. Yeah. You would have still made around 5% in the last 12 months with a diversified portfolio. But if you're just a, a Canadian investor only, you would have missed the boat of, of a decent return. But they all end up going to the mean. 
the average return over time. And so this is where you add layers and layers. And at the end of the day, what does diversification mean? You know, you won't make a killing, but you won't get killed. And GIC investors, I can tell you more clients run out of money by having a GIC portfolio than clients that have a diversified portfolio. When I say run out of money, they may have to reduce their lifestyle so they don't have to run out of money. But we have seen many people on the same street, literally, who retired in the 90s and were allured by high GIC rates at the time. And instead, some, some got a balanced portfolio. By the way, when you're looking at a pension fund, they're not investing in GICs. Your own company is investing in a balanced portfolio of many different types of investments. So long-term, that approach will outperform a GIC portfolio nine times out of 10 years. But this is the time where you're saying right now, as you said, Gary, where you're, you're being lured. Look what we can offer. What they're trying to do, they're trying to attract deposits so that they can lend the money out and make spread. There's no, there's no such thing as a free investment. You have to pay a fee somewhere. Theirs is called spread, but, or it's called a management fee, one or the other. But really, what? sit down with your financial planner and think of this not as a one-year plan, but a lifelong plan and then divvy up your investments accordingly, and you'll be quite happy with the results. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Find out more at donfox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back soon. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Find out more, donfox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. May to December financial challenges. Yeah, you know, time. yeah, um, and and couples wherever there's a significant age gap uh, between between partners, um, there are unique, uh, I, and I don't like to say challenges, but there are unique aspects to that that often need uh, some specific attention paid to, and you know when we look at situations like this, and we're talking, you know, a minimum of of five, ten years or longer. In, in differences in ages. And, um, you know, longevity risk is something that, that we need to look at as advisors, uh, timing of pension benefits, if, if they're applicable, a state, certainly estate planning uh, definitely comes into play. And when there is this, this larger age gap, uh, you know, certainly there's a risk that the, the younger spouse uh, might be might be on their own for depending on what the gap is um, for a, a longer period of time that requires retirement income. And, you know, what happens too with, with these types of situations is the, the younger spouse might decide to retire earlier because they, you know, let's say there's a 10 or 15 year difference and the younger spouse might decide to retire at 60, when normally maybe they would have worked till 65, 70, because they want to spend time 
They want to spend retirement years with, with their partner. You know, one of the most important decisions, certainly for, for these types of situation situations is to determine, you know, when uh, each person's going to, uh, to apply for their CPP for a lot of the reasons that we, you know, we often talk about. Um, so for, for couples where um, the younger, the younger partner qualifies for say maximum CPP, if they don't need that extra income, um, then certainly it, uh, it makes sense to defer that as long as possible to age 70. You know, timing, timing, and we, we, I talked about this in the first segment, timing RIF uh, drawdowns also becomes uh, more complicated uh, when there's a large, uh, larger difference in ages. And, and that has to be structured in a way that, that takes care of the short term, but also um, the longer term should should the younger spouse live for, you know, a reasonably longer period of time beyond the, the, the passing of the, the older, the older partner. So the other thing too, is, is, you know, a scenario where the older partner passes away and leaves behind a, a significant surplus of funds, especially if they're in a RIF, then um, if that's happened, if that's taken place over time, and again, we've talked previously about this, that can become a huge problem for the younger spouse because once they pass, if, if they've, as a couple, if they've not been able to work through the, the RIF income, um, you know, that, that certainly could be, could be challenging. So yeah, drawing Gary, down. We, 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 we yeah. do see this quite often with a second, with a marriage. And, and unfortunately, when the older spouse passes on, you know, the younger spouse no longer gets the old age security. They often don't get um, most of or all of the Canada Pension Plan. So there's a big drop of income that we do need to augment the age difference and that age gap you're talking about on, and, and making sure that that survivor can continue you know, living at a decent lifestyle. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's and that's critical. So it's it's a sometimes it's a, not for us as advisors per se, but it's a it's a challenging conversation for clients to to talk about uh this particular type of what if wouldn't you say don because um you know we're talking about a situation where um okay if there's a if there's a 10 or 15 year let's say a 15 year age difference well likely likely the younger spouse is going to be alone for a, a reasonably long period of time yeah i would just say 15 years you know just off the get-go that's a long time and quite often there's a lot more complexity and this is where you say um, a second marriage quite often where there's kids involved and you've got two sets of families or, or at least one other set of family of kids, which needs a totally different type of will. I know I've spent a lot of time personally working through this and, you know, will the, you know, the, the one that they passed on, are the, what about their kids? Are they going to be kicking you out of the house, the other one? So you have to make sure that the assets are split equally or are not necessarily equally, but fair for this surviving spouse because that age gap can really cause a lot of issues. So yeah. yes, it's a, it's a tricky planning situation. Yeah, it, it is tricky. And, and, you know, you hit the nail on the head too. It's oftentimes with, with such a, a dramatic difference in age, there are, it is a blended family situation and, uh, and secondary marriages and so on and, and partners. So uh, making sure that not only are they planning for, for each of them, particularly the, the much younger partner spouse, but also for their respective families, their respective wishes 
that they want to see from a legacy standpoint uh, through to fruition. So uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, you know, when we get into both of those things where there's a dramatic difference in age, coupled with the fact that, that it's a blended family situation, it, it, it is, there's a significant need for really strategic planning at that stage. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. We're back for our last segment. Moments from now, hang on. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. This should be interesting. The last segment, Merit or Luck. Yes, I had a chance. I, I read this article um, by Paul Kershaw. He has his own podcast in the Globe Mail. And uh, anyway, it was uh, quite interesting and added a different spin. And you know what? We love to pump our chest and say, look at what I've done. And it was it lucky or did you earn it? Now, i got to say, there's a whole lot of people that are in the same boat as you, perhaps, that did not fare as well. And you had the exact same circumstances. So you still live through the same circumstances. One person retired comfortably. One person basically blew that opportunity. So what I say is, looking at today, it's a lot harder. And so you, we get to these questions and think, well, you know, it's look what I was able to do. I worked hard. And because of all the hard work and diligence savings and my invested, this is what I have now. The young kids today just aren't doing that. And it's kind of like standing on the old podium and thinking, well, is it really, do they have that option? Nobody ever likes to be challenged where they, they, what they've earned. And they kind of, some people actually get a little defensive when you talk about, okay, you, could, you simply won the lottery of timing because you became a homeowner 19 years ago when you could buy a house for $200,000 and now it's worth $1.2 million. The Younger ones, and again, Scott, you can look at your kids, and I'm looking at my kids, and uh, yours a little younger than mine, but same boat. Are they going to have the exact same opportunities? Mm -hmm. And so it, it's it's tricky. So you look at this, and they, they got all this equity in their house, and it's like, well, they got this easy wealth windfall rather than simply working. And it's like, well, you know, I bought a house, and this is what it grew to. Yes, but is it always that way? That's not the norm. So it's, it's kind of interesting. So they'll often say we never applied or received any welfare or government subsidies. Well, it's been a lot. It's, a, it's just generally easier then. Um, retirees today should be thanking the younger generation for contributing 14 to 27 percent more for those same programs than that when, when they were younger. So think about that. A younger, you know, a younger person, a millennial is paying 14 to 27% more in the same programs that now you 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 had. So that means more money that you have to invest. Um, quite often you hear older people saying, we purchased our house with our hard-earned after-tax dollars and ongoing sweat equity to maintain that house. You know, good for them. Awesome. 
you didn't have to do that. You, you, you did this and that's why you're better off. But you think today though, it would take a typical young Canadian 17 years of full-time work to, to save up 20% down. 17 years. It did not take 17 years for these people uh, two generations ago to save for the down payment. Yeah. So that's kind of the average rate now. So you look at this. So in the mid-70s to the 80s, it took five to six years to save up for that down payment. Today, it takes triple that time. So you understand how the younger Canadians are throwing up their hands saying, we don't have that option. And then here's the other one. We made our modest saving contributions over decades. Well, good for you. Awesome. Because it is hard to save. So I always look at this, pay yourself first. It's definitely harder. But with the price of housing today, it's a lot harder to save. So when a, a new Canadian has now finally got their house and interest rates are where they are, their money is going to debt payments. And if and it's actually getting point to it's very hard to raise kids. So They'll often say, well, we raised three kids and who are all employed and they're all paying taxes. And again, these are all great things. And again, good for you. And you should be proud of it. But think about your kids now. Where are they? Uh, reports are one in three Canadians in their 20s feel that they can't even afford to start a family because the housing, the housing costs have left their wages behind. So. It's not necessarily like when, when you when you see these young kids saying, well, we're not having kids, it could be a financial decision. And rightfully yeah. so. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. So we another one was we give general, you know, very generous to charities. Well, again, fantastic. And it's fantastic to support charities. But the younger generation may not be able to afford it. So we often get lost in the timing and our lucky situation that we're in. And it's called more or less called a generational squeeze. We see what has happened. The we're, We've actually created some of this issue. And uh, as older older people, we've polluted the planet. I'm not setting my, host, my, my, my soapbox here, but we've created a lot of this ourselves. And now the second generation is now paying the piper for this. And so there's always this question, will the next generation be better off than the current generation? And the, and the answer right now seems to be less likely. And so I always think, okay, as a financial planner, yes, we always love to see the kudos of good long-term saving habits. But it's hard to have a savings habit when you're renting all your life because you can't afford to save for a house. It takes 17 years. So part of it might just be generational lucky timing versus what is option, what's the option for your kids today. So think about that. And you may want to actually say, you know what, I need to help our kids, give them the leg up so that they can get, you know, have some of the same things that we're enjoying when we when we were their age. And, you know, another thing to think to add on to that, Don, that when we were buying houses way back when uh, several decades ago, they were actually building them. And if you don't build point. them, uh, you know, there's uh, not enough supply. All right. Great show. We've been planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at DonFox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Thank you, gentlemen. Another great show. Have a great week. Thank you. You too.
Thanks, God. Thanks, Gary. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.